Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and my guest today is Radhika Dutt. She is the author of Radical Product Thinking, The New Mindset for Innovating Smarter. And she says when we build products without thinking about the change we want to create in the world, we actually inflict collateral damage to society. And she's got some very good reasons for saying that she'll share those with us. Businesses have come become increasingly more short-term oriented since the 1980s, and our approach to innovation has increasingly, I can't talk today, increasingly become short-term driven, meaning that we optimize for business results in the near term, and that can lead to an iteration-led approach to building products. One of the examples she's going to share with us is and we all know this if we're following the news, Boeing's 737 MAX issues. That was huge. So an iteration-led approach leads to product diseases that are often fatal to innovation. Radhika, welcome to your partner in Success Radio. I'm so happy to have you here, and I'm sorry I can't seem to articulate my words, but it's yeah, I, do you have those days where your your mind wants to say one thing and your tongue goes, nope, not going to play? I'm having that day. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's so great to be here, Denise. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you for sending the book. I've got it on my desk. And I definitely want you to share the um, you know the story about Boeing because that was such a mess. I don't even know how many millions, billions of dollars were were lost during that cluster. Exactly. I don't even know what to call it. It was such a mess. And it was such a, a tragedy, all led by uh, an iterative approach to building products, right? Um, so the story with Boeing is that, you know, Boeing was basically milking their cash cow, the 737 platform, for about 40 years. And that's a long time, right? So the 737 platform, when it first came out, you know, it, it was great. It was their bestseller. Um, but, you know, after about 40 years, even the engineers knew that the platform was really nearing the end of its lifespan, right? It was time to build a new plane, a narrow body plane from scratch. But what happened was Boeing being, you know, the, there was always something to focus on in the short term. I mean, you know, there was always revenue pressures, uh, investor pressures. They had to show results to stockholders. Um, and so what happened was they kept trying to milk this cash cow for let's just milk it a little longer. And so what happened uh, was they had really kicked the can down the road in terms of building a new narrow body plane. Um, in the meanwhile, you know, a competitor came along and that was Airbus. Um, and Airbus put out a plane that was 20% more fuel efficient. Um, and it was only when you know, American Airlines, which was one of Boeing's, you know, flagship customers, when they said, oh, you know what, we're also going to add Airbus to our fleet, when they were exclusively a Boeing fleet before, that was when Boeing realized that they really had to act. And so the way they reacted to that was saying, okay, let's put bigger engines under the 737 platform. Um, and with the, with the rather low frame that the 737 had, what ended up happening was that made the plane aerodynamic dynamically and to overcome that issue you know they developed software that would make sure that the plane didn't stall when it was at cruising altitude um, and and so the software would push the plane's nose down and that was in fact what um, uh, what caused the two crashes of Ethiopian Airlines and Line Air um, the whole if, if we boil it down to its basics, right, what basically happened was they kept iterating on what was working well. It wasn't a vision-driven approach saying, you know, we need a new narrow-body plane and building that from scratch. It wasn't about thinking about the change that they wanted to bring, you know, perhaps a more fuel-efficient plane and then really going for it. Uh, it was the short-term thinking. And so this book is about 
helping organizations avoid that sort of short-term thinking by thinking about, you know, what's the change that we want to bring, having a clear vision for that change, and then very systematically translating that into everyday actions. And see, that makes sense. Instead of saying, okay, let's, you know, our overwhelming issue here is let's not go bankrupt any time today. So, you know, you let's just, I call it bandaging a hemorrhage, which is what they did. How come, and this and this, maybe you don't have an answer. I don't think anybody has an answer for this, but why didn't somebody smarter, several somebodies in that company say, stop, think, what happened? Where was the communication breakdown? That's a really good question. And I think there's been a lot of analysis on this, right? And there were people who said, well, we shouldn't be doing this. Um, but I think part of this within an organization goes to, um, you know, psychological safety. We need psychological safety in an organization where you need to be able to say, you know, I, you need to be able to express a contrarian view in the company without mm-hmm. repercussions. No kidding, and that's a big problem these days. So, and let's go back. Before we get too, too far into this, explain to our audience or share with our audience who you are and why you do what you do so they'll understand why this topic is so very important. Yeah, so my background is that, uh, you know, I did my undergrad and grad uh, at MIT. This was back in 2000. And, you know, the first startup that I started um, was called Lobby 7. This is right while I was still in my dorm room uh, at MIT along with, you know, four other co-founders. And, you know, what I realized was – I was building, I was launched into entrepreneurship uh, and I was working on building companies. But along the way, I was making mistakes. Um, In the first company that we built, for example, you know, we realized that we're entirely too early to the market. We had caught a disease that I now call hero syndrome. We were (laughs) were focused on being big. It it (laughs) makes you itch. It really does. You just, you have to really stop and think, do I need to do this right now? And that's hard to do. Exactly. You know, hero syndrome is basically where we want to be big. Uh, It's all about scale. And we conflate success with having scale and doing something big, right? And that was the first product disease that I ran into. But the thing is, right, over the course of the last 20 years, um, having started, you know, with that startup, but then afterwards, I worked in many other startups, larger companies. So my background is that, you know, I've worked in so many different industries from broadcast, media and entertainment, telecom, advertising, even government, right? Um, But having worked in all of these different industries and sizes of companies, I kept realizing that, you know, it's just really hard to be vision driven. Like it's so easy to default into being iteration led. And I started calling these product diseases that we run into because it just feels like it's so easy to catch them. Like we shouldn't feel uh, ashamed that, you know, we make these mistakes in translating vision into everyday actions. That, you know, chain between vision all the way to Uh, reality, it's so easy to break and make these mistakes. And what happened was I realized we don't have methodologies um, or or business books that really help us translate a vision very systematically into action. A lot of our methodologies focus on, you know, how can you go faster? How can you iterate faster? Um, A lot of it is about uh, trial and error, learning, uh, fail fast, learn fast. You know, that's one of the most common mottos in the tech industry. And so we needed an alternative to this way of thinking. We needed a more systematic approach so that we can avoid these product diseases that are just so common. Uh, And that was how radical product thinking came about. Uh, It was led by this question, you know, that we see a few rare leaders like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. And we think, you know, it seems like it's just these few rare leaders who are able to build world changing products. It seems like the rest of us, you know, we're kind of doomed to just trying things and seeing what works. Um, And, and the, the real question, the burning question for me was, you know, is there a way each of us could build those world changing products, um, 
and, and learn to do that systematically? What if you didn't need that innate skill? Um, what if you can, you know, learn how to do this because there's a very clear process? And that's how radical product thinking came about. And I started testing it with organizations. Um, and most recently, you know, I, I've been working with um, the central bank in Singapore. Uh, and, you know, when, when organizations all the way from startups to a central bank can use this approach to create change, um, that was when I realized, you know, it was time to write a book because this was really working across such different kinds of organizations. Oh, no kidding. And you have mentioned product diseases a couple of times, Radhika. And do you have any examples of product diseases and some of your own experiences of having caught them and corrected, course corrected? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I mentioned hero syndrome. That's one of the most common ones in startups. But another uh, example of a product disease is pivotitis. Um, when... <laughs> I know that one. <laughs> I have to say, and this is a COVID thing, you know, when yeah. COVID first came along and everybody said, oh, we have to pivot, we have to pivot, pivot. I hate that word. Can't stand it anymore. It's one of those words that I just go, Bleh, whenever I hear it. I oh, would rather... No. <laughs> I would rather adapt than pivot, but that's just my my gripe. So keep going. Oh no, it's my gripe too. I love that. That is my pet peeve, Denise. Oh good. <laughs> I, I hate the word pivot as well, because one of the things uh, with that word is we've started to use this and normalize it to the point where we think that the way you build a startup is keep pivoting until you find the, the right angle on this, right? And the examples that are used to justify this approach are ones like Slack or Twitter. Oh, look, Twitter, you know, started off as a podcasting company and they pivoted to who they are today and look, they're successful, so we can do it too, right? And the, the analogy I like to give is it's like licking trees and hoping for maple syrup. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, that's going to stick in my head all day. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Excellent. And so, you know, you may just lick the right tree and it works out, right? And this is what happened with Twitter, but that's, that's not a strategy. And so um, the reality is for most organizations, you have two to three pivots before you've run out of money and momentum. And so instead of getting pivotitis, it's really important to try to prevent pivots by doing some planning, figuring out what's the real need in the market, what's my vision, having a very clear hypothesis, and then your execution is your way of validating, is that working or not? Um, and, and so this is why, you know, I love the word you used, adapt. It's important <laughs> to try things if it's not working. You have to understand what exactly is not working. What was your hypothesis? Where did you go wrong? It's that sort of adaptation that's important instead of just, oh, let's pivot. When you pivot, it feels like it's wild swings for your team and it's very demoralizing. Instead, you know, the the approach that you described, the adaptation, that's where you describe a vision. You learn something along the way. You, dis you discover that, oh, you know, I was wrong that this is not the exact need in the market. It's actually this. Then you go back and revisit your vision and you uh, rewrite that vision. And that's an important thing to do, which, by the way, you know, everything that we've ever learned in our um, it, in our MBA, for example, or in school is your vision should be everlasting. It never changes. You write it once and, you know, you kind of put it down on a tablet and that's, that's how it is forever. And that's really not reality, especially as we think about COVID, you know, things change. It's important to have a vision, but then go back to it and, and rethink it when you need to um, and, and articulate what exactly has changed um, and, and how you see the world differently. And how you can make it better. And going back to pivoting, I always kind of, you know, it's a physical thing for me. I don't have any depth perception at all. I really don't. And anytime I pivot too fast, I'm going to hit a wall. I'm going to slam into my mantle or I'm going to slam into something. So every time I see or hear the word pivot, I can almost feel my body smacking mm. something. So it's not, that's, I mean, it's just, it's not a good word. I don't think, I don't think it's a good, I've never liked it. When it first started popping up, I kept saying, 
all you're doing is twisting your body around or your business around. But what have you done? What have you acknowledged? What's working? What's not working? Quit hitting that darn wall. So, you know, that's my attitude about it. Exactly. By the way, another common disease, and maybe this one is one for larger companies, is what I call obsessive sales disorder. Um, Obsessive sales disorder is what happens where, you know, you have a product, maybe customers love it, uh, but, you know, what happens is in our pursuit for short-term goals, maybe, you know, we have revenue goals for this quarter or next, and so our customers, you know, your salesperson comes to you and says, oh, you know what, if you just add this one fee that that's needed only for this client, you know, we'll be able to win this mega deal. And, you know, that sounds mostly harmless. So then you say, okay, let's just do this. And pretty soon, you know, everything that you're doing is uh, a set of these one-off requirements for one for, for just one customer after another. And that's obsessive sales disorder. It's basically um, we're trading off the long-term vision in exchange for short-term gains. And this works in the short term, but the more you do this, right, the more you're moving further and further away from the vision. And, you know, a good example of that in, in my world is software engineers, their salespeople will say, oh, yeah, we can do that. And then all of a sudden, the software engineers or the sof- software architects are looking for their guns. They don't <laughs> want to do it. They can't do it. They shouldn't do it. And, you know, sanity does not prevail. And then the company just gets further and further and further away from their core values. So I, I understand what you're talking about. Oh, and you, you know, you brought up software developers and kind of how this affects the team. Basically, when you keep trading off the long-term vision in exchange for short-term uh, profits, what happens is your team thinks, well, you know, you don't really believe in the vision if you keep, um, if you keep drifting away from it. You know, if if you're constantly just trying to go after some short-term goal and you're not thinking about the long-term vision, you must not really believe in it. And that's very demoralizing for teams. Um, And especially, you know, if we think about COVID and the kind of burnout that people are experiencing, you know, we all want to see purpose in our work. We want to see that vision in our work. And the more we drift away from our vision, right, it just feels, um, it's it's easier to just feel fatigued and burnout from work. Well, no kidding. And the more you play around with this, and again, I'm talking software, the more patches have to be created. So now Mm. you're pulling everybody off of what their original work was, and they're running around bandaging hemorrhages, which is, we see this a lot everywhere. So, you know, going back to what you're talking about, vision-driven building is just a much smarter way to do things. Exactly. And, you know, you mentioned uh, what you talked about just now in software. They often refer to it as technical debt, which is where you do things for the short term and it may introduce bugs and it just reduces quality of code. Right. Um, In the in the radical product thinking world, when you drift away from your vision, I kind of borrowed that term. I call that vision debt. It's very similar to tech debt, except that instead of producing brittle code, it's just making a product feels very lost and confused. And this happens in marketing. It happens oh, everywhere. Yeah, you know, the minute you say, okay, we're going to fix this right now. We're going to make a million widgets and sell them next week by midnight. You're lost. You have lost all sight of everything that ever made sense in your company. I see it a lot. Yes. And, you know, it's so interesting that you've picked up on how, whether it's marketing, software, every part of your organization needs that sort of alignment. And you're so right that, you know, also when it comes to marketing, very often what marketers face, for example, is, oh, you know, my company, they want me to test out all these different messages. You know, marketing becomes this game of optimizing metrics, trying different things, um, or you're tweaking designs, et cetera. But when it's not driven by a really clear vision and strategy, you tend to just confuse your audience, too, in terms of what exactly do you stand for as an organization. And as a marketer, you feel like you're working on tactics, but it feels really devoid of strategy. And that gets very frustrating. So 
you've you've really hit the nail on the head that you know every single part of the organization needs a vision and strategy that's driving it it and this is um and in creating this approach my goal was to create that sort of alignment across the whole organization so that you know instead of all of us being arrows pointing in different directions and everyone moving fast, but in different directions, which looks like chaos, um, that all of our arrows are pointing in the, in the same direction. So that, you know, instead of chaos, it looks like we're in the same direction. We have velocity, not just speed. Right. So basically, if I had to kind of boil this down, we're talking about marketing, branding, and culture. So quit dividing everything and figure out an approach that can avoid these product diseases and avoid burnout and avoid Boeing. <laughs> Going back to Boeing, it's terrible what happened. I, I was shocked. I really was. But then when I started reading about how it happened, I went, oh, because I understand marketing and I understand people going, oh, we've got to get this done. We've got to retain, you know, the market share. Let's just, let's just bandage it. Let's just make it happen. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the starting point to all of this, right, like you mentioned just now, that we have to um, think of a new way of working so that we avoid these diseases. In the radical product thinking way, you know, what I realize is if we want to be vision driven, we really have to start with a good vision. And herein lay the first problem. What I realized was, you know, we've everything that we've learned about what is a good vision just happens to be so flawed. So for example, we've learned that a good vision is broad, it's unchanging, as I mentioned, but you know, it's, we've heard that a good vision is a BHAG or a big, hairy, audacious goal. Um, and for years, you know, uh, GE's vision to be number one or number two in every market, that was touted as a great vision. You know, we're used to vision statements saying, oh, to be the leader in or to disrupt blah. Right, um, And it turns out that's just so flawed. What we need instead is a vision that truly describes the problem that we want to see solved in the world. And then our vision for what's the, what does the world look like when we're done. And so basically what we need is a vision that describes the who, what, why, when, and how. Meaning whose world are you trying to solve? Uh, sorry, whose, whose world are you trying to change? Uh, and the reality is, right, we, we can't change everyone's world. Um, so we have to be very specific. We can't just say, oh, it's consumers, right? That's just too broad. Um, we, have to be, we have to be able to create this art, identified group and say, you know, this is whose problem I'm solving. What does that problem look like? And then the most important question to me is, why does that problem need solving? Like, maybe it doesn't, you know, maybe the status quo is just fine. Um, if, if there isn't a problem with the status quo, uh, then maybe there's no reason for your product to exist. The I agree with you. <laughs> and uh, another thing, and yeah. we'll go back to this, I just wanted to toss it out before I forget it, but I keep seeing, reading, hearing disruptive, disruptive, disruptive technology. I'm starting to grind my teeth, but let's go back <laughs> to that in a little while. I'm so glad. Your pet peeves are very much my pet peeves, too. Who knew? <laughs> I mean, but it just, it makes sense. And why do we want to disrupt everything? But anyway, you keep going and just remember, we'll come back to disruptive. Yes, I do want to talk about disrupting. Um, so we talked about the who, what, why questions. The next is the when, meaning when will you know that you've arrived? What does the world look like when you're done, right? And then finally, the, the last question is, how will you bring about that world? And that's the question about, you know, what is your technology or your approach, um, your solution that's going to help bring about that world you want? And so in the radical product thinking way, you know, what I've found is trying to answer these, this uh, who, what, why, when, and how, when you're starting with a blank sheet of paper, is just really hard. You start to play vision bingo and just wordsmithing games. Uh, instead, you know, I use a fill-in-the-blank statement um, and by the way, there's a free toolkit on my website, uh, radicalproduct.com, where people can just get this uh, toolkit. And this toolkit helps you really um, answer these who, what, why, how questions. Without getting into the wordsmithing, uh, you can just focus on really um, creating that statement by focusing on your answers to those profound questions. 
Oh, that's brilliant. I don't know about you, but you know, I I like to type. I'm very fast typing, and I think it's hard for me to write things down, even in my journal, because my brain is over there, and my fingers are still over here going, I've got this word. But I can't tell you how many times I have gone to Word and opened up what I wind up calling an epic blank sheet. It's like opening <laughs> the refrigerator door. You, you open, I call that five-minute meditation. You open the door, you stick your head in there, and you're blank. Same thing. With, I've got, if I ever want to meditate, open up Word or open up the refrigerator door. I'm done. <laughs> I love that. Exactly. <laughs> There's nothing to clear your mind like a blank sheet of paper, right? Exactly. Um, and so, yes, I use this uh, vision worksheet as a group exercise so that each of us can um, can write a vision for our same product. And this way we can compare our vision statements and understand, you know, where we might be misaligned and talk about this, those misalignments. And that leads everyone to really buy into the vision. Uh, and that's the starting point for a vision-driven approach rather than just, you know, let's try things and disrupt stuff. Yeah, spaghetti. There's, you know, just toss that spaghetti and see what sticks. And we're seeing more and more and more of that as the world gets faster. Listen, last night I was consulting with a client, and we all of a sudden realized that September is gone. Tomorrow, which is today, was going to be October. And I think we both just kind of sucked in air and quit breathing. We just went, I mean, this entire year, well, 2021, has really, in my opinion, just been a big whooshing sound. And I'm <laughs> don't you think? And a lot of people just go, oh, my God, oh, my God, we've got to get, oh, we have to get this done. And they're in panic mode rather than let's sort this out, let's find our vision, let's work our vision, you know, let's, let's make this work instead of I am just going to sit in the corner, suck my thumb, and rock back and forth because I don't know what to do next. Which I've done, by the way, without the sucking my thumb part, but you know what I mean. Yeah, exactly. And it's understandable, right? I think when we are focused on doing, we feel it, it feels satisfying because you're taking action. Um, and that's there kind of lies the problem that when it's not driven by that vision and strategy, you, you might be moving, but you might be moving around in circles. And so, you know, it's not a waste of time to write out this vision and answer this who, what, why, when, how questions, because this is, I think of this like the blueprint for your team. You know, when you write this out, it really gives your team the blueprint for what they're supposed to construct. Uh, and, and it's important to every once in a while go back to that blueprint and say, you know, are we still building the same thing? Or, you know, COVID is a perfect example where you look at the market, the changes that have come along, and we say, you know, actually, should that blueprint change a little bit based on what we've learned? Uh, and, and, it, and have this um, edited blueprint, let's say, that gives us that clear guidance, right, on what we should be building. And I agree with you. I don't know about you, but I go back and I'm going to go download that toolkit because I don't need any more epic blank pages. I've had too many in the past year. I've actually, you're going to think I'm a lunatic. I actually have a draft folder that says, you know, there's different documents in there. One says epic blank page one and the date. The other one says epic blank page two and the date, and they're embarrassing. So I actually keep them so I can figure out what day I didn't do a darn thing. Oh, here's another one. Well, crud. So it it keeps me honest. Well, mostly. Mostly it gives me a headache, but, you know, I think you know where I'm going with that. Yeah. But you say, too, that in your book, you say that your product is your mechanism to create change in the world. And you're right. We're all building products. But being more vision-driven, I think, is, you know, this may be new to a lot of people. Is there any kind of really strong words or advice that you want to give people right now to say, listen, don't have that blank sheet of paper. Download the toolkit and then start, not necessarily fresh, but Look at what you're doing, what's not working, and do something different. So what do you tell people when they're like me going, oh, geez, we've got 90 days to 
fix this or do something different. Oh, geez, oh, geez, oh, geez. Well, actually, I said different types of words, but I won't say them on the radio. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I love that you describe uh, the essence of radical product thinking, which is that your product is your mechanism to create change. You know, each of us, no matter where we're working, whether it's a nonprofit, um, whether it's government, it's a high-tech startup, a large company, even if you're freelancing, right? Um, you have a product and your product is how you're creating change. So it's always important to start with what's the change that you envision. Um, and, and that requires answering, you know, those questions of, uh, you know, who, meaning who exactly is the customer? What is their problem? Why does it need solving? How will you solve it, et cetera? Um, but once you start there, right, uh, it, it has to feature in your decisions, um, and so this is what the, how can you actually use that vision? Um, very often, right, you start with a vision, but what happens is exactly what you describe. You say, you know, oh, I have 90 days to fix this. What's the most urgent thing I have to work on? And we're just off doing that most urgent thing. Um, and so in the book, the way I talk about how we can use the vision in everyday decisions is um, to actually visualize what are you working on right now? And by visualizing it, we can be more intentional about it. And I visualize it by drawing an X and Y axis. So your X, uh, sorry, so your Y axis is the vision. That's the long term. What are you trying to solve? And your X axis is survival. Um, so, you know, if you're a small company, a startup, let's say, survival is based on financial survival. Like, are you going to be able to raise funds or, you know, uh, it's, it's based on the next quarter and making a profit or not, etc. If you're a larger company, uh, survival might be you know, uh, your stakeholders or your boss supporting you. Maybe it's not about whether your company has money or not. Your company might have money. But if, you know, your bosses are not happy with you, uh, you might not have a job for too long. So maybe that's your survival. So by visualizing this X and Y axis, right, what you're really trading off is the long term against the short term. And you can try to bring in your vision and be more vision driven in your decisions. So, for example, Stuff that is good for your vision and it's good for survival, those are the easy decisions, right? Like, of course, go do more of those things. Um, things that are good for your vision, but it's not helpful in the short term. Uh, maybe, for example, if you're doing something for your for yourself, right? Maybe you need to take a course in something. Um, that's maybe not helping you in the short term, but maybe it's a longer term, um, it's going to unblock you in the longer term to be able to achieve your vision, right? That's investing in the vision. Uh, the opposite of investing in the vision is what I talked about earlier, which is vision debt. That's basically where it's not good for the vision, but in the short term, maybe it's, um, it's, it's makes you really happy. You know, if you decide to slack off for a day, right? Um, that's, uh, that's maybe in the short term, that is what you need, right? Um, so this, the examples I was giving, those are like from our personal lives and how we can be more intentional. But you can use the same kind of approach when it comes to your work or activism. You can always draw things up in these different quadrants and see whether something is a good vision fit and whether it's helping you survive or not. And we can be very intentional in what decisions we make and what tasks we're taking on. Because when you don't think about this X and Y axis, the only axis we're thinking about is short term and what's most urgent. Absolutely. And I am, I was thinking about something you said earlier, and I'm actually in your book on page 52, and it you're talking about whose world are you trying to change, and, you know, going back to really defining down who it is that you're trying to help, who it is that you're trying to reach. Listen, I get this all the time. I'm a web developer by trade, and and I love that. I mean, I, I dream in HTML. It's a pitiful thing. Um, I really do. I love to code. I code in my sleep, apparently. But one of the first things I hear, and I think all companies or all people are going to hear this, well, who are you trying to reach? And instantly, I'm going to tell you 100% of the time, it's like, who is your website for? Oh, everybody. Nope. <laughs> so let's have a chat about this. Let's drill down. And I think that's important to do in life and in business 
So you actually know who it is that you're addressing or who you're trying to be of service to. So let's chat a bit about that because I think it is, and again, it's going to, it leads to disruption. If you don't have all of this kind of sorted out and you're just doing that spaghetti thing, oh my. Can you unpack that? I'm not even sure that made any sense. It did, absolutely. And you know, it's, it's so tempting to say that I'm, I'm creating this website for everyone, right? Because you feel like, oh, you know, this way I have a larger target market. Like, of course, we all want to reach more people. But the reality is that when you try to build a product for everyone, you're really building it for no one. Um, you and got it a requires, widget. Requires, it's 99 it's, cents at Amazon. That's it. Free shipping. You got nothing. Exactly. I think... What we have to start with is this discipline to say, you know, first, there's a certain group of people who have an urgent need. It's not, uh, don't think about everyone who can benefit from your offering. Uh, My publicist actually has this line for her clients, and I love it. I'm borrowing it from her. So she says, you know, don't think about how your product is going to benefit everyone. Just talk about who has that urgent need for your product. That's really uh, the starting point for starting to define, you know, whose world are you trying to change? Uh, and I love that phrase, right? I think it really helps, helps you articulate um, uh, who, who should you be targeting first. And don't worry that, you know, your market is going to be limited. Start with those people who have that urgent need, and then you'll uh, you'll find you'll continue to expand and address the wider market. But first, address that urgent need and make sure that your product actually addresses their need. Because the worst thing is to try, put out something uh, trying to address a large number of people, and then not really finding anyone who's absolutely passionate about your product. Exactly. And I accidentally, I'm going to pet myself on the head here, I accidentally did that with this podcast 13 years ago. There was nobody to train me how to do this. I was one of the very early adapters. I've been doing it consistently for 13 years. And I had to teach myself how to do this, which is not a problem. You know, I don't sleep much. I'm an A-type <laughs> personality. Oh, yeah, what the heck, I'll just make a podcast. But I knew immediately that it was going to be a business podcast and nothing else. And I was going to find guests that, you know, I meet people from all over the world. And I meet people like you that, you know, I would never meet you in my local Walmart. We don't live in the same part of the country. So it has been perfect for me. But I knew that it was going to be business related. And that was the end of it. And I've never changed it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even and, and when I um, listen to your podcast, and I listen to so many of them, and I love them, by the way, uh, there is a very clear need in the market that your podcast addresses, right? It's not that... It, um, it's it's not targeted at everyone like there's a kind no. of it's and it's a kind of group of people who i can see and it's, clearly since we have the pet, same pet peeves you know it's my kind of people as well <laughs> Right, um, but it's and it's the same thing with my book. Uh, I didn't write the book for everyone. It's it's the same kind of people who are going to appreciate these pet peeves, you know. Well, and the thing is, you know, people. You know, I'm in a lot of podcast group groups, and they're so worried about their downloads and their listens. And I'll be very frank with you, I don't care. I really don't. I've never worried about any of that because when I'm speaking with people like you, I am so fascinated and I consider you to be my mentors. No question about it. I learn more each Monday and each Friday from speaking with my podcast guests and I have an opportunity for the rest of the week. So there's a very strong personal reason for me to do this because I learn so much from all of you and that makes me very, very grateful. But And I don't know that this is a product for me. It's not monetized. I don't make any money out of it. But I love it. And I get to bring people like you and your book and, you know, your wisdom to a very large audience. So it works for me. But, you know, it is a product because it's product doesn't necessarily mean that you're monetizing it. It's a product Uh. because you're creating change in the world through 
your podcasts, right? There are people who are learning from this and they're applying it to their work. You're scaling the thinking of, you know, many people, including me, um, and, and bringing it to so many people and you're changing what they do as a result. So indeed, you're creating change through your podcast and therefore your podcast is your product. Oh, I'm going to give myself a headache from patting myself on the head. Thank you. <laughs> that is very – I don't consider it a product, you know, product, but I need to rethink that because it's just something that I do because I love it. So I'm going to rethink that thinking. So let's, let's move on to – and thank you so much. When we build products, though, without thinking about the change we want to create, which I did not do, thank goodness, you say that we, we inflict collateral damage to society. Um, and further in the book, you say, just as the industrial boom led to environmental pollution, carefree growth in the digital era has led to digital pollution. No kidding. So by building vision-driven products, we can avoid contributing to the digital pollution. Do you have some examples you can share? Yeah, and, and let's get back to that point about disruption, right? We have yes. been, and, and this disruption point relates really closely to what we were just saying about creating collateral damage in society. You know, we have really fallen in love with this word disrupt. Um, we think that anything that can be disrupted should be disrupted. And the reality is, right, we need to build products asking why is the status quo completely unacceptable? Because if it's not unacceptable, maybe there's no reason to disrupt. Uh, and I'll give you an example of where disruption actually has been bad for society. Um, let's think about, you know, this isn't just a current problem. It's been happening for a long time. Let's think about the disruption of news media. Um, so what has happened with news media, right, is instead of having a lot of public funded broadcasts, what you have is uh, news media that's funded by advertising and increasingly so. So the rise of cable news, etc. What has happened with that is because it's funded by advertising, you know, what you care about is a lot of ratings and having people and having, you know, more sensationalist news so that people will come watch the news, etc. So it creates more polarization over time. And if you look at, there's been research that has shown that in countries where polarization has actually decreased or hasn't increased like it has in the U.S., it's been because there has been a lot of investment in public broadcasting as opposed to the growth of, you know, ad-funded cable news where they care about ratings. And that's a profound realization, right? We disrupted uh, news media saying like, oh, we could make more money by making it ad-funded instead of publicly funded. But there's if you take a vision-driven approach to it and say, well, actually, you know, I want news to be truly uh, neutral, and this has to be investigative journalism, something that's helping democracy, etc. We do need to think about how it's funded and how it can be independent, um, independent, but like well-funded so that they don't have to think about this constant trade-off between vision and survival, right? What they, what news media often has to do is take on vision debt, which we talked about earlier. Um, and that's one of the problems that leads to polarization. So, this is just one example of the kind of digital pollution that we create in the world. But every such, um, I, in the book, you know, I talk about five types of digital pollution that we've been creating uh, in the last few decades. Um, and, and the problem is, right, environmental pollution, you see dirty water, you see pollution, you see air pollution, and you can recognize it. The problem with digital pollution is it's very hard to recognize. So we see the effects of, on society. We see a more polarized society, a threat to democracy. But without recognizing it, we're not even starting to fix it. Listen, I agree with you. I cut cable. Well, the moment I moved my ex-husband out, I cut cable. I hated it. I don't watch TV anyway. The news to me is just propaganda, nothing more, nothing less. And what is that old saying? If it bleeds, it leads. Every time I would see the news or hear it, my stomach would hurt. And once I realized that it was actually settling in me physically, I went, you got to go. You 
no more nerve. But, you know, it's, you know, there's a reason why it's called fake news these days, but I agree with you. You know, there really doesn't seem to be much in the way of investigative journalism. And I'll be frank with you, I don't believe 99.9% of what I read. I can't. A lot of it's just the same old, same old at a different site. So you have to be so careful what you're willing to absorb these days. And it is disruptive. It's disruptive to the point where I think people are actually becoming a bit mentally ill from it. That's just my personal opinion. And and what you describe, right, this mistrust that we have or distrust in, in media, in news, etc., that is a form of digital pollution, right? Because right. we need to be able to... Um, okay, knowledge is important for democracy, to be well-educated on what is happening uh, and be well aware, well-informed of facts, right? And what has happened in the form of digital pollution is it's really easy to Google anything or search for information, but you it's become much harder to tell fact from fiction. Um, and that is you know, where we start to distrust what we read, et cetera. And it's, it's, uh, it's a threat to democracy because it just increases polarization. You don't know what's fact and what's fiction. Uh, it's hard to gain knowledge, although it's easy to find information. And that, you know, is, is part of what we need to do, uh, what we need to fix uh, when we think about digital pollution and its effects on society. Absolutely. It's just so easy for people to say, well, I saw it on CNN or I saw it on Fox. I don't care where you saw it. Are you exercising critical thinking? Are you going a little bit further and finding other information and forming your own thoughts and opinions? I didn't think so. Got to go. I won't stick around for the rest of the conversation. But it's, it's tough and it's getting more and more difficult for people to make sense of what's going on and it's deliberate you know, it really is it's deliberate but anyway let's let's move away from that before I start gnashing my <laughs> so I'm I'm back in the book I'm on page 118 and you're talking about organizational cactus which I found fascinating so can you uh, I mean people listening going what <laughs> why a cactus so let's talk a bit about that I love the words that you've picked out from the book. Um, so let's let's start with a little bit of background on kind of where organizational ca- cactus came from. The um, you know one of the things that I've found is culture is so important in our team. Earlier in the conversation, I mentioned psychological safety and how it's important for people to be able to you know share a contrarian or, or a different view without fear of repercussions within the organization. Um, you know that culture where you feel like you're doing meaningful work, where it feels purposeful, uh, where you enjoy coming to work, where you're not feeling burnt out, etc. That sort of a culture can be very systematically engineered. Um, and in the book, I talk about culture almost like a product. You know, just as you would engineer a product, um, you can engineer culture by starting with a vision for culture. And therein lies the problem, by the way. Culture is such a fuzzy thing. How do you create a vision for culture? Like our tendency would be, oh, you know, I want my work culture to be open, uh, transparent. But all of that, again, is just it's so fluffy. Like what exactly does that mean? It doesn't adhere to the who, what, why, when, how questions. Right. And so. In the radical product thinking way, culture is a much more um, well-defined concept. The way I think about culture is it's a cumulative set of experiences we uh, have during our workday. And you can think about your work on two dimensions. Work is either satisfying or, or fulfilling or it's not, and it's urgent or not. So if you think about this on a two-by-two matrix, right? I love to think in two-by-two matrices because it really helps me visualize things. Um, And so, you know, you see when work is fulfilling and it's not urgent, that's when you have lots of mental bandwidth. You're able to think about things. You know, you have some space to be able to have a vision to like translate your vision into your activities. Think about how what you're doing right now is connected to your vision. That makes work feel meaningful. So that's the meaningful work quadrant. The heroism quadrant is where, you know, work feels meaningful, but there's a lot of urgent stuff you're doing. So if you're a 
software developer, you're bug fixing, you know, your customer's screaming at you, you know, you, you're happy at the end of the day if you fix those issues. But what you're taking on is what I call heroism because it's uh, urgent yet fulfilling. You know, it adds spice to your day, but you do too much of this and you're on the fast track for burnout. That next quadrant is organizational cactus, which is where work is not fulfilling, but it's urgent. This is the stuff where, you know, oh, you know, I need to get a, a new laptop urgently. My laptop's not working, but I have these five forms to fill and, you know, six different people to ask. That's organizational cactus where you have so much paperwork and administrative stuff you need to deal with. Like, I need to make this decision, but I have to run it by five people before I can make that decision. That's organizational cactus because it feels slow and painful like you're walking through a cactus field. That's the soul-sucking part, right? Well, actually, well, soul-sucking soul is the, the last the quadrant, quadrant, which is where, uh -huh. where work is not fulfilling and it's not urgent. That is the, you know, constant, like, low-grade fever that's sucking the energy out of you. Soul-sucking is where, you know, you have to um, self-censor because you're worried about, you know, if you say something to your boss that you disagree, you know, your boss might uh, yeah, fire you or, like, it's going to have repercussions. Or, for instance, when you feel like uh, there's a pay gap and you're not being compensated fairly, um, anything that feels unfair when you have to kind of, uh, when work doesn't feel inclusive, etc. those are soul-sucking um, features. Um, and so these four quadrants all exist in every workplace, right? But a good workplace is one that maximizes the meaningful work quadrant, and it minimizes the other three quadrants. So that was the reason I created this two by two, so that we can start thinking about our culture more visually. How much time am I spending in the meaningful work quadrant versus in the soul-sucking organizational cactus and the heroism quadrant? And listen, for people who are going, but I'm not part of a big organization, I'm you know, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a solopreneur, I pretty much do this on my own with a small team. What the heck? Let me tell you something. I've had to make some big changes in my operation because I was the bottleneck. I was, I got to a point with one particular part of, you know, one thing I was doing working and I hated it. There was, I was very, very good at it. I was paid well, but I hated it. I got to where there was just nothing new for me to learn. There was nothing exciting about it. And I quit doing it. I quit offering that as a service. And all of a sudden, my stomach stopped hurting. I apparently have a weak stomach <laughs> now that I'm listening to myself. But, you know, sometimes you are the bottleneck. And, you know, it really does have to start with you, doesn't it? Exactly. You know, I love the fact that you translate these concepts to whether we're, you know, freelancing and solopreneurs or working in a big company. But you're exactly right. Like We can just think about how we experience our day, no matter what we're doing, right? No matter what your work is, how you experience your day, when you think about it on these four quadrants, you start to realize kind of if you're feeling burnt out, start to place all the tasks that you do in these four quadrants and you'll discover that if you don't have enough tasks that you're placing in the meaningful word quadrant that's your answer that's what you need to cut down on um, so that you do more of the meaningful work stuff and you'll just experience a better work day um, and or a better work culture you know even culture doesn't necessarily have to mean uh, having lots of people in your organization. It's just about how you experience your workday. And, you know, of course, this is very useful also to talk about uh, what kinds of interactions might be causing this, um, this sort of a workday for you. Exactly. And what I learned, you know, because, look, I am an A-type. I don't sleep, really. I don't. You know, I, I can't nap. Two hours here, two hours there. I always have. And, you know, I'm of the, the type of personality. I can do that quicker myself. Darn it. You know, I would just go do it all myself. And at the end of the day, I'd say, uh, I don't feel good. I'm tired. I hate everybody. And I got to where I was listening to myself whine a lot. So I started hiring people for me who can do exactly what I do, but do it better. I made it a point to find people who can take one section of my business 
and they're better trained. They're better. They stay up on things that I may not be up on anymore. They're better than I am, and I make sure that they get hired. Exactly. So you decided enough of all this heroism that I'm doing. Yes. It's time to spread, uh, not spread yourself so thin. It was killing me. It really was. And here's, and I had a thought, and then I just, oh, you ought to see your poor book. I've got stickies all over the place. Um, <laughs> I love pink. that. <laughs> but I'm on Chapter 9, and before, you know, we've got about five minutes, but I think this is so important. Chapter 9 is Ethics, the Hippocratic Oath of Products. I'm going to mute myself and let you run with this. <laughs> This is one topic that I am just so passionate about. So, you know, I uh, studied as an engineer, right? So I did four years of my undergrad and a fifth year of grad. And I can tell you that I graduated as an engineer without having had a single uh, course on ethics, right? And to me, I look back at that and think, wow, how is that possible? Um, You know, we need to start realizing that when we build products, our products are creating change in the world. And, you know, our our role in society is much like a doctor's. So a doctor, you know, uh, looks at a problem that your patient has and the doctor says, you know, here's the problem I see in you. Here's some medicine to fix that. Uh, But you know what? Take this medicine. um, Good luck with it. If something happens to you, it's not my responsibility, right? Imagine that. That would be unfathomable, right? And this is why there's the Hippocratic Oath uh, for, for doctors. But when we build products, we completely seem to forget that sort of responsibility. The reality is when we build products, we're doing the same thing. We're saying, you know, I see you have a problem. Here's my product to fix that problem. But we want to say, well, what happens after that? You know, that's not my problem. You know, good luck with that. Um, You should take responsibility and take care. This is what, you know, Facebook says, for example, what, um, you know, most of social media says, well, use this responsibly. Um, um, Even security companies like Pegasus, that that, uh, touched a nerve for me as well. You know, the, the thing is, when we take responsibility, we don't just say, well, it's up to users to use things responsibly. We actually think about what's the change we're creating in the world, and we very systematically need to create that change, And which is why we first have to envision the change that we want. Without that, we can't even start to take responsibility. Um, and so, you know, at least... Um, And and so, by the way, one of the things in the vision statement you'll see is it's not about a business goal. It's about the change. We first need to start to recognize that um, your product is that mechanism for change so that we can begin to take responsibility. Exactly. And I have to tell you something. I don't believe in coincidence. I really don't. But over the last week or so, I've been hearing or reading the words prisoners, the prisoner's dilemma. And guess what? Here it is on page 154 and 155. <laughs> I don't believe in coincidence. There was a reason this book landed on my desk, and, you know, I got to chat with you, and that's just one of them. So, listen, before we say goodbye, I would like for you to tell people where they can find you, and if there are any last-minute, um, you know, just pearls of wisdom that you want to impart that I didn't get to ask you questions about, just feel free. Uh, I think we covered so much, Denise, and you are the only one I've talked to who's picked up on Prisoner's Dilemma and wants to talk about it. Oh, my God, you make me so happy. You Um, know, I told you, I read these books. If my guests, who are authors, are kind enough to send me their book, I read them. I mean, it is, I I have to, well, I love to read. I'm, I'm a voracious reader, but it's a fascinating book, and I really recommend that people grab it. Thank you. Um, so the book is uh, on Amazon at your local bookstore on Barnes & Noble. You can check it out. It's called Radical Product Thinking, The New Mindset for Innovating Smarter. Uh, you can also get the free toolkit from my website, which is on uh, radicalproduct.com. Um, and you can reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, and I always love to hear how people are creating change uh, using radical product thinking. Oh, thank you. Listen, the book is really fascinating. I'm not kidding. I mean, I ought to take pictures. It's just bristling 
with sticky notes. It's kind of <laughs> embarrassing. I've made it sadder. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, I was going, ooh, 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 I have to go back to that. And parts of it, I use different color codes. Like, I have to go back and restudy this. Oh, I want to talk to her about this one. So I have a code for all my sticky notes. <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much for sending that to me. And, you know, I've really really wish you well with this book because I think it's an important ten seconds. we have 10 seconds I think it's an important message that we need to understand about you know products how we create them how we support them everything that we've been talking about so Radhika, thank you so much it's been wonderful speaking and chuckling with you and I thank you for all of the terrific tips and the advice that you have shared with us and before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us on iTunes, Amazon, Prime. We're everywhere. You can't throw a stick on the Internet without hitting your partner in Success Radio. And take us along on your success journey. Radhika, thank you so, so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, Contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.